This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Ashley Blaker, comedian, who lately has been all over the news, certainly the Jewish publication circuit, advertising an upcoming tour. I believe it's off-Broadway uh, or on-Broadway or something to do with Broadway, uh, which we'll get to. But welcome, Ashley. Hi, how are you? Doing wonderful. Uh, first of all, where are you going to be performing? We're here in, in May of 2018, a uh, big tour coming up. Where is that going to be? Uh, basically, in, a, in a, just a few days' time from when we're recording this, uh, so Sunday, uh, May 27th, I open, as you rightly said, off-Broadway, which means basically off, what a lot of people don't know what off-Broadway even means. So off-Broadway basically is a theater that's below, under 500 seats. That's what it basically means. Ah, okay. Um, off-Broadway off is under 100, but anyway, so this is a... a so off Broadway, but actually, as you rightly said, on Broadway because my theatre is um, is on Broadway and Fiftieth, so it's like right in the middle. It's amazing, like right in the middle of the theatre district. You have got like Hamilton, and you have got the Lion King and Phantom of the Opera, and then you've got an awning with this guy who looks like a rabbi on it, and people are wandering past, going, "What the hell's that? Why is there this rabbi?" <laughs> <laughs> And why has he got a woman's name as well? That's easy. <laughs> well, I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be too impolitic since we just met. But I was going to ask you, is that like a British thing? Because I, I think you are British. Is Ashley like, you know, there's a different time zone over there and maybe a different oh, name so, zone? This is so annoying. I just thought I used to an interview with the New York Post and I was talking about this. They get asked about this a lot. So basically, but number one in the UK, Ashley is almost entirely a, a, a man's name. Okay, so like any, you know, all the famous Ashley's in the UK would be, would be men. And of course, you could say that and I wouldn't be able to correct you. So that's great. <laughs> but, but this is the, but you know what, this is a really annoying thing. Okay, so I, my mother is a very big fan, was, was at the time before I was born, uh, a, a very big fan of the movie Gone with the Wind. Okay, and there's a character, anyone, any listeners who have seen Gone with the Wind will know, or read the book well, no, there's a character in it called Ashley, okay? Is Ashley a man or a woman in that film, in that movie? It's a man. It's a man, right? <laughs> and, and, and you know what? Even worse, Gone with the Wind is an American movie, right? And it's an American book. So basically, sometime between 1975, when I was born, right, and now, somebody in America sat down and went, you know what? We've had enough of Ashley being a man's name. Let's change it to a woman's name and make my life difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it was really personal. Yeah, I, I'm taking it personal. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I, one thing, if Gone with the Wind was, a, was, a, was an English-British movie, uh, it doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm, I'm really fed up with it. Well, I'm, gla I'm glad we put that to rest, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, because that was kind of the elephant in the room, and I, yeah, I was yeah. sort of afraid to mention it. But well, the other thing is, is my Hebrew name is Hanan. Okay, so, so and, and I go to a very, very, very super strict uh, synagogue and they refuse to like acknowledge like non-Hebrew names. So even when I get a shawl, like the, the, the membership dues letter, like it'll have on it, Mr. C. Blaker. And, and, <laughs> and this is actually really good because if you, my rabbi, I can do whatever I like because if you went to my rabbi and said, um, do you know this guy, Ashley Blaker? And he'd say, no, I've never heard of him. I know Hanan Blaker. 
Um, he said, I don't know, actually, because I can just do whatever I like. And if someone says, oh, actually, Blake has said something, I can say, oh, I don't know who he is. <laughs> it's your alter ego. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Ashley or Hanan, uh, yeah. you, you obviously, again, by, by accent and by uh, association, did not grow up in the United States where, where I'm here recording. You grew up in Britain. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? What was your upbringing like? Um, so I grew up in a suburb of North London. And uh, I mean, what, religiously, I mean, religiously. So in, in America, because it's obviously such a big country, such a hugely diverse range of, of uh, Jews and, 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 and what have you. Britain is much smaller than it quarter of a million Jews in the whole of the UK. And the vast majority of them um, actually would be what I suppose we would call kind of like traditional Orthodox. So basically they, 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 they affiliate with Orthodox. You know, that's their, you know, they, they, they would pray from a kind of art scroll sitter, you know, kind of thing forever. That's it. They're not reformed. They're not, they're not kind of anything, you know, not uh, non-Orthodox in that way. But so you go to synagogue most weeks, uh, most uh, Sabbath mornings, what have you. And then you come home and you put the TV on and you go to the mall and what have you. And that, that's the kind of upbringing I had. Very traditional in that way. You know, we took off all the Jewish holidays. And you know what? I must be honest with you, there are times I actually really miss um, that, that kind of short life. Actually. The, the, you know, going to that kind of more, much more observant synagogues. In a way, I actually do miss that kind of huge range of people you would get. I think there's something very special actually about that kind of community where you get all kinds of people. Uh, I will come back to that actually maybe about, I like performing for, that's one of the great pleasures I have in life is actually performing and engaging with a huge range of people. But in terms of my upbringing, yes, yeah, so that's the kind of upbringing I had. I actually went to a non-Jewish school. Um, it's something very funny. I, I talk about this, not in my American show, but in another show I, I, I'm doing. I talk about this, only the Jews, with quarter of a million of us in a country of 60 million, right? Only the Jews would go around calling everyone else the non-Jews. <laughs> That's a fair observation. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. We, everyone else are non-Jews. We're like 4% of the country. Anyway, so, um, but yes, yeah, so and actually, funnily enough, I went to a school which there were something like 35, 40% Jews but you would have thought it was 90%. And actually, even like the, the, the non-Jewish people called themselves honorary Jews. And <laughs> it, like, it, it, it was that kind of school. It's like, I mean, they, they had like prayers at lunchtime, whatever. And um, yeah, it was very, very accommodating. But I was, I was at school with a lot of very confident, pushy, cocky, chutzpah <laughs> North London Jewish kids. So that's, that's a preparation for... for sure. So obviously it says, it sounds like you made some kind of a, I guess, religious transition in your life. When did that take place for you? What was the impetus for that? Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. We weren't like, you know how like some people will say, you know, I got involved with this movie, you know, like, you know, went, went to Israel on a birthright. I didn't have that experience at all. Basically, my wife and I got married. And in the UK, if you get married in like an Orthodox synagogue, they give you a free membership for a year to your nearest shul. Okay, so like, you know, if somebody gives me something, I want to, you know, I want to make a bit of use of it, you know? So I, so I thought one week, you know what, I'm not doing anything this morning, I'll go over to the synagogue and see what it's like. So this rabbi, his name's uh, Rabbi uh, David Lister, and he, he's the smiliest, happiest man uh, you ever met. My father always said he knows something we don't, because this man is always smiling. 
and he um, he runs off the bimmer and says says who are you you know whatever you think incredible and and I I you know I'm I'm very uh, you know I'm I'm influenced by kind of, I really enjoyed it anyway the week later I went back and he obviously thought you know what I've got one here so he said to me what are you doing this afternoon because you know the afternoon prayers we don't always get a million we don't always get enough people what are you up to and and I hate saying no I'm terrible at saying no I mean you know. You emailed me and said, well, I come on a podcast. I say straight away, away yeah. <laughs> terrible saying that. I hate to disappoint people. So I said, yeah, okay, fine. You know what? I'll try and come along. I came along and he said to me, what are you doing on Sunday morning? Because uh, we, we struggle for numbers on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Starting to catch on here, the, the pattern. Yeah. And I was, anyway, like an idiot, I went. And then he said to me, uh, so what are you doing Monday morning? <laughs> At the end of the week, I was going to every service. That, I, was, I was in. I was in. I was kind of like, I was kind of hooked, you know, they, they, they start you with, be careful, you know, kids, be careful, <laughs> you can get hooked. And then a few weeks later, I looked like this. I mean, basically, yeah, a shortened version, but it pretty much was a bit like that. It's and, still a pretty organic process, you would say. Yeah, no, so it was kind of like, uh, you know, the, and the truth is genuinely, I think the, the key thing is just to, you know, to keep that growth and, and to always feel that you're, you're moving in the right direction, even, even though, you know, there's kind of bumps along the way and what have you, but at least you kind of feel that you're, you're moving in a, in, in a positive way. So, like, it's been a real period of, of growth and, and movement and whatever. And we're, my wife and I, we're, we're kind of like, we're the kind of people, we're, we're not very good at just, like, staying still and just saying, oh, you know, we're happy now. This is enough. We're kind of always kind of, like, challenging ourselves, thinking what else can we do? You know, what's the next step? And, and I think, like, personally and professionally, that's been a really big part of, of our lives over the last, 15 years or so. Did your wife grow up in a similar environment? Yeah, pretty similar, if, if not even slightly uh, less observant. But um, yeah, but yeah, you know, really. And then let's say even comedically, like in all the things that I've done, it's like, what next? What let's, it's not enough. Let's not rest on our lives. Let's do something crazy. Let's, let's go and see if this would work. Maybe it'll fail, but let's see. So were you interested in, in comedy early on? I mean, I don't think of uh, British private schools, if you will, as very, uh, Funny places. <laughs> they sound uh, like rather stodgy. Yeah, no, they, they they definitely are. I only go to a boarding school, but they are because I mean, like you know, all those kind of people like Monty Python and all those kind of there. That's like the product of of that kind of education because if you spend your life with authority, and, and Monty Python had loads of sketches about school and, and authority. You know, I think half of like Python sketches are about like authority figures and, and whether it's um, vicars or school chaplains or teachers or, or, or military men who are coming out saying, you know, stop it. It's got a bit too silly. Um, there's something very fun. British people are very good at kind of looking at authority and, and kind of laughing at it in a way. But yeah, no, I was very interested. And I, I, I mean, I even, we had a, we had to have a careers meeting. I remember when we were like 15, 16 to that you, it was going to like determine what, like you went in and basically and said, I want to be a doctor. They would say, okay, so for your, what we call A-levels, which are like the subjects you do in your last two years, like senior, junior, you, they say, okay, you should do maybe maths, chemistry, and biology. So I went into this meeting. I said, I want to be a stand-up comedian. And I was doing, I was doing uh, comedy shows in the lunchtime for like the, 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 all, the, all the kids. And I was actually on the circuit. I was on the comedy circuit, professional circuit in London when I was 16. And I did gigs with people like Eddie Izzard and, and Lee Evans and, and shared the bills, like really big names. 
And I was all right. I wasn't bad for a 16 year old. I think it was pretty good. I mean, I, I, I look back now and I realize like, I didn't really, you know, at that age, you're too young. All you can really do is, I guess, imitate the people you, you like. And interestingly, maybe we'll get on to this. I had to actually become observant in order to find the things that I really wanted to talk about and to find that persona. So it was a real kind of like what we would call Mina Shemaim. It was like a real like heaven sent kind of thing. Like one of those real signs of like, you know, God runs the world because I could really see like this divine presence in my life because it's actually only as a result. Every single thing I'm doing now is only the result of having become observed. So what did you do? I imagine that they looked at you kind of funny when you said stand-up comedy. <laughs> what, what coursework do they yeah. suggest for that? <laughs> yeah, well, I went, so basically I went to, um, so I was doing all that stuff. And then I went to uh, Oxford University to, to read history. And the funny thing is, I don't know if you, you're aware, but there's an incredible history of British comedians, like all the Pythons and all those kind of people. Uh, but through to, to John Oliver um, and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, I just know that the original office was, uh, was there. Yeah, all, all those kind of people, right. So all those guys, um, they all went to Oxford and Cambridge and they all did comedy. They all did, they were involved with something called the Cambridge Footlights or the Oxford Review. And they basically, they went up to places like Oxford and Cambridge thinking, I'm going to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. And they got seduced by the comedy. And I'm a second nonconformist. I basically did the exact opposite. So <laughs> I really thought I was going to go up and just do comedy. And I got seduced by the work. So I ended up uh, doing my history degree at Oxford. And then I went to Cambridge to do a PhD in the, the dullest. Um, I'll, t- I'll tell you, listeners will, sw- will fall asleep. I just telling you the title of my PhD thesis. <laughs> but I'll tell you. Anyway. The, the Doctrine and Liturgy of Parish Clergy Removed for Lordianism, 1641-1642, and their impact on religion in the parishes in the decade in the long parliament. I, I actually did 1642-43, to 43, so we should yeah. really talk. So basically, it was, yeah, no, so it's basically about pre-Civil War, British, English Civil War religion. But, um, and then what happened was I left. I mean, this is so... You know, I don't know how, in, how much you go into these kind of things normally, but I really, and I don't want to be preachy by any means. I mean, I can only talk about my own experience and my own take on stuff, but I've seen so much like divine providence in my life because I left Cambridge. I had no idea what to do. Did you I, finish the doctorate? I wrote up, what I did was I wrote up 70,000. I got a bit bored of it and I wrote up 60,000 and got an MPhil, which is a, a master of philosophy. And I was, re- I had no idea what to do next. And I went out for a drink. It's Thursday evening, okay? And I went out for a drink in a pub, very British thing to do, with a couple of former teachers from my high school. And I said, to, I was moaning, saying, well, I don't know what to do with my life because I've got, you know, I've, I've got no experience. I, all I, I know how to read handwritten vestry minutes, 17th century handwritten vestry minutes. But apart from that, I haven't really got that many life skills. And one of them said to me, why don't you look in this, thing called the media guardian i had no idea what it was i i said what's that i don't know what it is so basically there's one of the biggest uh broadsheet newspapers in the uk the guardian newspaper quite a left-wing um uh, reputation wasn't the kind of paper we read in our house we were a daily telegraph family but he says it's a paper um they have a media section and it has jobs in the media 
he said, I think it comes out on Monday. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it's Monday. Anyway, so this is Thursday night. Four days later on Monday, I went out and bought The Guardian for the first time in my life. The media section's there. I open it up. There's an advert that says, do you have funny bones? The BBC needs trainee comedy producers. And I thought, okay, that looks interesting. I applied. I started work there at the BBC 10 weeks later. And you know what? This is totally true. That, that advert was only in the paper for one week. I was buying it, despite the fact that four days earlier, I'd never even heard of the paper. And I bought the paper every single week for those 10 weeks before I started work. I didn't even apply for one other job. There was literally never a job that was suitable for me. So, like, incredible. And then, if that's not enough, right? So then, a week, but it was only a six-month contract. And basically, like they said, yeah, we'll keep you on if you, you know, prove your worth, maybe bring in some business, whatever. So a week before, I'm walking in the center of London, and I bump into somebody I was very good friends with at school, but we kind of drifted apart a little bit, a man called Matt Lucas. Now, those uh, listeners who, who know a lot about British comedy, or even, so, so they'll definitely have heard of Matt Lucas. Matt Lucas is um, he's in Bridesmaids with uh, his Rebel Wilson's uh, brother. They, they live together in Bridesmaids. He's in Doctor Who. If you're a Doctor Who fan, he was um, he played Nardole in the last uh, series and a half. Anyway, so he's very famous for a show called Little Britain, uh, which is a, the most successful sketch show the BBC has ever made. Shown in like 154 countries, uh, which I produced. And we're, I'm walking down the street, bumping in. He says to me, "What are you doing?" I, I said, oh, "I'm just about to start this new job." I said, "What are you up to?" He said, oh, you know, we, my friend and me, and we, we, we kind of we." Not sure, not things haven't really worked out. Wondering whether we should go our separate ways. I said, listen, I've got this new job at the BBC. I need to do something. Why don't we do something? You know, we could make a show together. And basically, if I'd not bumped into him that day, like everything, every, like this was, we were meeting, we could have met any time over the last three years. You know, we lived in the same city, but we were meeting at precisely the moment that would have, basically our whole lives changed at that. Incredible. So what did you do with that? You go on to produce a show with him? So basically, yeah. So he said, let's do this show. So the show, we, we met, I remember we, I started work on October the 18th, 1999. We piloted the show on the 20th of January. It was like, so it was three months later. Um, and yeah, it became the biggest, the big, the most successful commercially, the most successful show, comedy show that BBC's ever made. More, even more than The Office. I mean, this show is like, it, it ended up, it's on BBC America, Netflix. Uh, they made an American version for HBO. Um, yeah, and they make millions, and, and I'm having a talk to you on a. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, you got a sure you got a card, Ashley. <laughs> I, I misread. I misread the, the fine small print. Um, <laughs> and then, and basically, basically, I spent you know yay many years working, at least in comedy. I was a producer and a writer, and I I worked with loads of uh, pretty much everyone who's anyone in, in British comedy, uh, in terms of an American context. Russell Brand, James Corden. John Oliver, uh, you know, pretty, pretty much everyone, but as a behind the camera, you know, Graham Norton, uh, writing monologues and writing lots of comedians monologues and, and, and producing shows. So it, it started at one point, I was just keeping Shabbos. And then a bit later, I actually started wearing a skull cap to work. You know, then I started wearing the sitsis and at first they were tucked in. Then I felt confident I left them out. You know, my payers, the side locks grew a bit longer. Then I was wearing a black hat and I was walking around. By this point, the BBC wearing a black hat and what have you. And I got a phone call one day, or an email, I think it was, 
from a guy called Rabbi Nissen Wilson. And he was a, a local rabbi in London. And he said he was inviting me to come and speak at his shul, the synagogue. They were having a malava malka, which is a uh, Saturday night meal, basically after the Sabbath, a, a communal meal. They always have a speaker. And he said he wanted me to come and speak. And you'd normally have, as you know, uh, you'd, you'd normally have like a rabbi, so, you know, someone learned to come and tell over, so, so give some inspirational message. I said, what do, you want me, I, what do you want me to say? I've got nothing to say. And he said, no, you know what? I've heard about you and I understand that you work with all these famous people. And yet you're this guy who, who looks like a rabbi. And, 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 you know, you don't work on, on the Sabbath and you keep kosher and you don't, you know, do this and you don't do that. It sounds amazing. Like, that's such an interesting story. I'm sure people would be interested to hear about this. I said, all right, okay, fine. I, I didn't even ask for any money. I went, I think he gave me a bottle of whiskey, actually, but whatever. And I, I, Before I, or after? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I did it. And you know what? It went well, and people were interested. And he obviously recommended me because lots of other people were in touch going, would you come and speak here? And every time I did it, it was a bit like, I liken it to if you were like an alcoholic and you had a, you know, recovering alcoholic, recovered alcoholic, and then you had a drink for the first time, or you were smoking, you had a, a drag on a cigarette for the first time. I'd forgotten how much fun it was to stand in front of a room and you say something funny and they laugh and it's very addictive. And every time I did it, I thought of more funny things I could say. And it basically, each time I did it, it was becoming more like comedy instead of a speech. And at one point I just thought, you know what would be really interesting? Maybe I could rewrite this talk, just turn it into stand-up, get rid of the lectern, come out, hold a microphone, and get rid of all the things that isn't interesting and isn't funny, and just do comedy. And yeah, like real serendipity, what I discovered was there was no one really doing what I was doing. There was no one, maybe in the world, really, who was talking about the kind of things I was talking about, talking about the experience of being whatever you want to call it, like strictly orthodox Jewish person, but we're living in the work, working in among, you know, the secular world, talking about, I got like a whole routine, for example, about the issues of not shaking hands at work and all these, you know, a long, long routine about it. And, and, and it was like, it opened up this entire, like a box. It's like the fun of opening a box that had never been opened and discovering all this material inside. It's an amazing thing. And again, it all happened because the way my life had changed. It does sound like an incredible amount of serendipity and yeah. as you say, divine providence. I want to drill down a little bit into your comedy because comedy means a lot of different things, you know, to different people. And so to begin with, what really do you think draws you to comedy? In other words, what about it is calling you? What's sort of the deeper pull or the deeper aspiration that, that is at the heart of your uh, love affair with that medium? I, I, I think that's just in your blood. I mean, I think that's just like, that's just how you're made. It's like, it's a bit like saying what makes you feel like uh, a certain food or what makes you, you know, it's just, that is how I'm made. My first instinct, no matter how it ever happens, my first instinct is always to make a joke. Like something, like, I was really upset a few months ago because one of our kittens, we have, we have a couple of some cats and one of our kittens got run over. And uh, don't laugh. It was funny. <laughs> <laughs> don't laugh. It's very horrible. Uh, no, and anyway, so my, but seriously, I've taken the cat, I've taken the cat off the road. I was really upset. And literally, the first thought that came into my mind was, oh, I'll have to say catish. And like, it's like, <laughs> 
But like, that's my first instinct. My second instinct is to be upset. It's like, I have to like make, there are some people that's how I'm made. It's like my first instinct is always, because it's like, I'm never off duty. It's like that, it's just the way my brain is wired. Has that ever gotten you into trouble? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. It really has, definitely. Yeah, I have to kind of, and luckily I'm not, I have awareness enough to go, although that's my first thought, I don't need to always say my thought. Okay. <laughs> that, that whole filter thing. Yeah, no, you, have to, you have to have enough seichel uh, to actually know when to, to, to not actually say the thought out loud. Well, it, it is interesting because, you know, talking about a filter, you know, I think so much of comedy is dominated by those who traffic in shock value and, you know, the ability to to use, you know, dirty jokes, so to speak, and to, to be able to use innuendo and, and or explicit language and, and imagery to create their humor. I would imagine that's something you probably avoid. If so, is that something that's become integral to your identity as a comedian? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I think that's great. It's a great, op- I mean, the thing is, I mean, a few points. Number one, obviously, for sure, there's no, you know, there are subjects, it's not so much, I, I avoid is the wrong word. There are subjects that I don't, that there's subjects that many comedians talk about that I don't. And there is language that many comedians use that I don't. That is not, I'm not avoiding it though, because I don't use it in my actual life. So I wouldn't, it's not like I'm sitting, standing on stage going, oh, I wish I could say this, or I'm really trying hard to restrain myself. I, I don't curse in my day-to-day life, so I'm certainly not going to do it on stage. Um, but I actually think what's great is the opportunity to show that that's not necessary. I think a lot of, so many people have said to me, oh, it's so refreshing to see a comedian who isn't vulgar or isn't using, not to, I don't want to say it's critical of anyone else. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't care if people do that, but people have said that to me. They can say they're so refreshed to see that. And I think what's really also really interesting is that when I worked like at the BBC and, and stuff like that, is that people would often swear in front of me. And they would immediately go, oh, I'm really sorry, sorry, sorry. And I'd say, I don't care. Where, you know, I've never said I don't mind you. I mind you doing that. You don't need to apologize. And they'd often say to me, no, no, I, you know, I, I notice you don't. And it always makes me a little bit self-conscious if I swear in front of you. So I just apologize. And then they don't do it again. And it, again, I, I don't want to sound too preachy, but it's it really struck me like what an amazing opportunity that is to kind of make a kiddish Hashem, to show Jews in a good light. Um, because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, for a lot of people, I'll be the only Orthodox Jew, certainly the only like ultra Orthodox Jew that I've like, ever met. And so the opportunity to kind of show that like, we, you know, we behave in a good way. I think that's really special. You know, in the same way, like when I was a producer, like producers have got like a real reputation for like, you know, shouting and, and shouting at people and tearing strips off researchers and, and, and assistants and runners. And I'd never do that because I just know that like, I've got to make sure I, I behave the absolute, absolutely the, the, the best I can. In terms of the sort of the style or quality, again, avoiding the vulgar, or not avoiding it as you put, but that, just that not being part of your vocabulary. Do you have any, any comedic role models? I think in the US, Brian Regan comes to mind as you know, a consummate professional who's really entirely clean. Are there any comedians that, that are models to you in that sense? No. But I say that because I think this is a really important point to make, is that I don't want, I wouldn't kind of like talk, see this whole thing about clean or this community is clean or that community is clean implies that there's a kind of subset that you have to, in some way you're like, 
having to restrict that it's some kind it's like it's a restriction you know far i don't I, I almost don't like talking about it because it's kind of like it's implying that I'm restricted. Far from it. I, I'm talking about stuff that other people aren't able to talk about because they don't know about what I, because they don't live, they don't have that experience because they don't have the experience of going into a meeting and that hand gets put in front of you and you're, or, you know, and you're thinking what to do or they don't have the, all the experiences that I have. They don't live in my shoes. Um, so I've been blessed with a whole new different set of, I don't need to worry about that because I've been blessed with a whole different set of comedy. That I of material and, and, and subject matter and language and, and stuff. So, no, and I think also the other thing that's really important to me is to basically whatever I do is to essentially, essentially to kind of have the value, the production values and the quality of the secular, non Jewish, whatever it I think that's really important. I think that's re really important to me. I, I, you know, I've basically spent 20 years working with, you know, the highest level of comedy. And it's to transpose that to the Jewish material I'm doing now. A lot of Jewish entertainment, uh, and I didn't say this, it'll sound like criticism, but I, it's not necessarily criticism, it just is what it is, is very Hamish. It's very, it doesn't have that production value of you could never, there's a lot of Jewish music, not all of it, but a lot of Jewish music, for example, you would look at and, and listen to, and you could never imagine that this was had the same producers that, like, Ed Sheeran has, or something like it's just a different, it's just a different world. And I think the important thing is, is that I don't want, and that's also why I don't really do like, I don't play synagogues, I'm not doing that. I, I, I want to be there on Broadway, that this is like going to see anyone else, that it's got those production values. Because you know what? You do a thing in a show, right? There's, a, there's like a, there's a, left, there's a ceiling of how good that can be of that experience. I so want to give the audience an experience that you can't create, that you re so much work has to go into creating that experience. You know, it's interesting because you, you referenced that your life experience, your personal journey has really provided the fodder for your comedic material. Um, but given that that is the case, how does that material then relate to non-Jewish audiences or audiences that even are maybe Jewish but don't share uh, in those life experiences. And so to them, they're like, they don't even maybe get the references. No, no. Yeah. Okay, so it's a good, good question. So, so with regards to the different answers, the, the Jewish audiences, one of the things that I'm so proud of, I, I really am, is that I perform for such a range of, of people. And, and let's talk about the Jewish audiences. The such a range of Jewish audiences. I do a show, and you will have people in women in shaitals, wigs, you know, men with long beards, black hats, all the way through to the completely unaffiliated, uh, uh, to the progressive, the liberal, the reform, all of, the complete range. And I'm really proud of the fact I, I was I've been on stage and actually looked down and thought to myself, you know what? I literally cannot think of one other circumstances, one other circumstances that you would get these people in the same room. There is no other time. I did a show in Newcastle in the northeast of England, and she's very near Gateshead. I'm sure, you've heard of Gateshead. It's like the last shtetl of Europe. They have like lots of yeshiva and, and, and Torah centers and seminaries and what have you. And I did a show there, and, and these, um, there was this whole row of guys who come from Gateshead, like seriously, seriously observant guys. And then sitting next to them, was this female reform rabbi from a town like 20 miles up the road or whatever. 
I'm thinking, when do these people, these people don't come together. You don't, and it's great that humour can bring people together. People who aren't Jewish often think, oh, Jews, they all get along, obviously, you know, that you're all Jews. No, you know that that's not the case. That actually there's nothing, we are such a divided people. We love kind of putting up barriers between us. Oh, you know, the old joke about the, the, the guy on the island who builds the two shawls, you know, the, the one I go to and the one I wouldn't be seen dead in. We love dividing ourselves. And so it's amazing that humour can bring Jews together. I, I love that fact. Um, now, with regards to the non-Jewish audience, I've just done a BBC show, my own BBC show, called Ashley Blaker's Goyish Guide to Judaism. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm also going to Edinburgh Festival this year with a, a show for non-Jews called Ashley Blaker Observing Jew. And, and basically, I use a lot of the same material. Obviously, it just needs a huge... Some of it wouldn't work, but I need to just have a huge level of, obviously, language, needs to make sure that every, everything is explained in the language they can understand but also with explanation. What is hilarious to me, is really funny, is often the explanation I was discovering when I've done this, I did like my uh, BBC show, and I noticed that the audience l often were laughing just at the explanation. It's not even material, but they find it so funny. Now, I'll give you an example. I was doing a routine about, I got a routine about what we call a shopper's goy, which is, you know, it's basically like if you've got, you leave your light on, in your bedroom let's say you leave your light off in the dining room it's going it's completely dark you're not allowed to turn it on, on on the sabbath but you can go and find somebody we call a shabbos guy who's allowed to come in and do it for you somebody's not jewish they're allowed to come in and i'm explaining this in the show and i explain i said to them i said um now we're not allowed to ask but we are allowed to hint and i am not joking the laughter because it sounds so funny and, when you, and I realized that actually this, that there was mildly just in the explanation. I can absolutely hear how that would come off to a crowd. And uh, just so I don't get in too much trouble here, obviously that's a bit of a caricature, right? We know that uh, the laws uh, aren't quite so simple like that. And that technically uh, we can't actually hint uh, in most cases. That's a whole other fascinating topic. And uh, make sure to ask a rabbi before acting on that. All right, now I've uh, covered my bases there. Uh, Ashley, other examples where like the process or just the explanation itself could be entertaining to an unlettered audience. Again, something we, we take for completely, you would take for granted, is the idea of selling your chametz, all the stuff you're not allowed to eat at Pesach, at Passover, to a non-Jewish person. And like there's this one guy in your town who's like the biggest owner of whiskey. <laughs> Of like London, this guy owns more whiskey. Got like more. He's got the best collection of alcohol, like better than the Queen. This guy's got like, <laughs> got, but he can't touch it. And he's acquired it for like for one dollar, <laughs> like, but for only for eight days. Are you ever accused, or how do you avoid uh, venturing into, you know, irreverence or uh, you know what might be considered mockery? Or, and rather, obviously, I'm sure your goal is to, yeah, to make light, but also to inspire on in some level through the humor, how do you avoid venturing into uh, maybe over the border into irreverence? And, and have you ever been accused of that? Yeah, you know what? I have. I, I, ha I have once, once or twice. And actually, I'll tell you a funny story in a minute. But the, my, I once spoke about it with a, not, not my rabbi now, but somebody, I, a, a rabbi who I learned with every day for, uh, we had like a daily learning together for like over 10 years. And he said to me, and I, I passed on like a, a critical call I'd had or email or whatever. And he said to me, look, 
the important, you should take your Judaism very seriously, but you shouldn't take yourself too seriously. And he's basically saying there are some people who do unfortunately take themselves rather too seriously. Of course, there's a line that you shouldn't go beyond. I hope I don't go beyond that line. But, you know, I, I do think that some, I'm not saying dismissing every criticism, which is being, oh, he takes himself too seriously. But I'll tell you a great example. I was, I was doing a thing, performing at a dinner for a synagogue. This was in America. I won't say where. But uh, it, they, they, they booked me to, um, to, to perform at their, like, gala dinner thing, whatever. I get a phone call from the rabbi. Now, funny thing is, a lot of comedians will say, tell you, if they do a thing at a, for a synagogue, they'll get a call from the rabbi. Normally, to go through what you can and can't say, don't swear, don't do so. I always get the opposite. Seriously, this is totally true. I get, like, I'll get a phone call and they'll go, look, please, don't use too much Yiddish. <laughs> They're not so, you know, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. You know, every other comedian in the world is told, keep it clean. I'm told, be a bit less clean. <laughs> that was the kind of call I was expecting. But anyway, this guy rings me, this rabbi rings me, he said to me, I've watched some of your videos on your website, and he said, there's a couple I, I really, really had an issue with. And I was really like, wow, I, I'm a, I was like racking my brain. I'm not, I can't even imagine which one. And he said to me, he said, there's a routine you do about the difference between Jewish and non-Jewish New Year. And he said, I've got a real issue with it. And I said, why? I, I, and he said, you know what? He said, I feel, he said, my community, I feel if they hear that kind of thing, if you basically you're saying like Rosh Hashanah is, oh, it's really hard work. They'll just go, yeah, we don't want to do it anymore. And I was thinking, wow, now come on. I mean, I, I, I didn't say it, but I was thinking, wow, you know, if, if, if you've got such an issue with your community that you think hearing a five-minute routine from me on how tough Rosh Hashanah is is going to make them all just go, right, yeah, we're not doing Rosh Hashanah anymore, <laughs> then I think you're not doing your work the other, you know, 52 weeks of the year. But anyway, I, he, and I, you know what? I'm very happy to discuss my work and defend it because I said to him, I, I've got, I listened to him, and I said, I'll be honest with you, with all due respect, I, I really don't agree. Because actually, if you listen to this routine, and there's actually no, what I would call actual jokes, and stating fact. This is what they do. This is what we do. This is a fact. What you take from that is up to you. But this is a fact. On New Year, they get drunk and have a great time. We spend eight hours sitting in shul, praying and kind of saying who's going to die at his predestined time, who by fire, who by stoning, who, you know, it's a miserable thing. It's very scary and, and, and what have you. That's, I didn't make that up. That is a fact. I can't, I can't be accused of making this up. So anyway, the first thing is we discussed it. And I promise this is true. It's such a great life. He said to me, okay, look, you know what? You're coming. But please, can you avoid any material about Judaism? <laughs> that's, like, that's like booking that's like booking Richard Pryor and saying look can you mention don't mention being black okay <laughs> that's all I've got I've got nothing if you've seen me I've got nothing else hey Seinfeld listen enough with the observations okay can you <laughs> do some impressions you know I, 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 thought, I said look I'll be honest it's going to be a short show <laughs> this, is, this is all I've got <laughs> uh, how did that show turn out that was great. You know, I, I spoke to someone else and they said, oh, don't worry, he's leaving, he's retiring. <laughs> <laughs> was, the, was the rabbi laughing at the dinner? <laughs> uh, I looked over, I didn't think so. <laughs> okay, I was hoping for some kind of a happy ending there, but okay. You're coming soon to America. Um, yeah. I'm really curious because this is obviously your marquee show that's yeah. going to be taking place. 
Are you concerned that you've made your chops in Britain and British comedy, British humor could be different than American humor often? Maybe it's a bit drier. I mean, well, you tell me what are the distinctions that you observe between the different comedic cultures and are you concerned about that translating? Yeah, no, not at all. So so I've been doing some shows in America, but a lot of work has gone into this. The biggest challenge is, number one, is linguistic. So, you know, this show has been through such a filter to make sure that every mobile is a cell phone, every pavement is a sidewalk, that the, you know, it really, you know, it's the trousers, the pants, and and we've got all that, I've got all that in my head. And that's, I I even pronounce several words incorrectly for your benefit. (laughs) Give us an example. I say garage instead of garage. I say amenities instead of amenities because... Because you don't want to break up the flow. You don't want to say amenities and people go, what was he? Oh, amenities. You want to keep it, yeah. So, you know, every reference, there every reference in it has changed. You know, it's really right in that regard. There's a few jokes that I've noticed, just a very few kind of lines that I wouldn't do for an American audience because I know they're a little bit different. Like, you, you would, you're kind of less into kind of wordplay puns and what have you. But subject matter... This is the amazing, this is the, the great thing, and it's also actually funny and, and also sad in some respects, is that almost all the material is so universal in terms of what Jews are like, and that's what's amazing. So, for example, I've got this whole routine about driving, what Jews are like, parking, treble parking outside the shop, putting on the hazard lights, whatever. I did this in America, and somebody says to me, wow, I just thought that was just Crown Heights. I didn't realize it. I do, I did in Israel, I've done two Israel tours, and someone says to me, wow, I thought that was just Beit Shemesh. I didn't, I thought I just read Beit Shemesh, I didn't realize it was like that. You know, and someone would go, I didn't realize that was like, I just thought that was Flatbush or Lakewood or Golders Green or Stanford. This is what we're like. Our routine about the Jewish obsession with sushi. This is what we're like. Our routine, I this routine about, um, you know, these like, you, you'll get on the London Underground, but you'll get them in the subway, you'll get them in New York, you'll get them everywhere. The men who wear a skull cap, a yarmulke, whatever, when, you know, whatever, work or when they're out of work. But when they travel, they, they put on a, a baseball hat. <laughs> and you go to the charged. <laughs> and you'll see the guy, you'll be sat on the subway on the London Underground, and you'll see some guy wearing a suit, a beard, and a baseball hat. Sometimes he's even sat there reading like Mishnayas. He's learning, like, you know, Hebrew text. And he's wearing a baseball hat. And you think, well, men in suits don't wear baseball hats. You, you're clearly Jewish. There's no way you couldn't be Jewish because no one else would wear a baseball hat. So you're trying to avoid people knowing you're Jewish. You've marked by the baseball hats that you're Jewish. Anyway, so I, and the other thing I love, actually, funnily enough, and I think this is, you know, you said talking to me about comedy. I always think the best comedy, right, the very, very best comedy is the comedy that once you've seen it, it's impossible to ever see the world the same way again. You know, like Monty Python is like that. Once you've seen that, it's very hard to see certain things ever the same way again. Now, I think with stand-up, that's, that's always what you're aiming for for me. You could go to a comedy club tonight and you will see a comedian who will have you crying with laughter. And I ask you tomorrow morning, what was he talking about? He said, I can't remember. It didn't stay with me. The best comedy is that comedy that stays with you. Now, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to try and make huge claims for myself. But what I will say is, is that I'm incredibly gratified and I think I must be doing something right when people, like years after they've seen me, will send me a photo of a really badly parked car and go, I saw this and thought of you. 
or they, I, I get photos all the time. Seriously, I get photos all the time of men wearing baseball hats on, <laughs> or, or sushi at, a, at, a, at an event or whatever. And people will send it to me. Go, oh, look at this. I thought of you. And I think, like, yeah, that's great. That says that, like, that has stuck with you, and you now can't see that without, you know, having those thoughts. So that's great. I think that's great. But it's, 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 it shows this universal experience. It's amazing universal experience we have. So you know what? You say, oh, it, it, you're British, but you come to America. What's that like? We Jews, we're all the same. We behave in the same way. We're all chutzpahdik. This is what we're like. You know, we all want to get the good parking space. We all want to get a good deal. We all want to find out how much each everyone's earning. Speaking of which, actually, Ashley, I'm <laughs> I think I've done shows where people have just gone to me, oh, um, so let's count, count me up. <laughs> I did a show, seriously, I was just about to go on stage. 300 I mean, people, uh, $70 a ticket. <laughs> yeah, we, we reckon what, you're making, yeah, we're making, yeah, about $40 a ticket. There's, there's 20 rows and there's this, wow, that's what we're like. That, that's, that happens the whole world. That's not a British thing. That's not an American thing. That's Jews. Ashley, just in, in starting to wrap up, I mean, you, you said that, a major goal of your comedy is that people should walk out perceiving the world differently. Are there any other goals that you have when somebody walks away from a show of yours? What do you want someone to walk out with? Is there some kind of deeper inspirational feeling? Uh, you know, or is it just entertainment? For me, it's really entertainment. That really is the, the bottom line. You know, I, if, if people want to take anything else from it, then, you know, that's great. But the aim is 100% entertainment. Um, but people tell me all kinds of things. Like that it inspired them and so on. Often people tell me the, the message I get more than anything is that, that beyond the entertainment is people will tell me, I felt proud. I felt proud to be Jewish. Because I think it's a really special thing. Forget observance. There's nothing to do with that observance. There's something special about being proud to be Jewish. Kind of going, yeah, I, I felt proud. I felt, you know, I felt like I could go out and be prouder to be Jewish. And, even, and, though you're, even though you're poking fun at many aspects of it. That's what I'm saying. There's something very special about seeing someone who looks like me. This is a podcast. You know, but I look like I look like a rabbi. I look like, you know, you you don't often go to a comedy show in a in a big theater and see a guy wearing a black suit, white shirt, long sits is hanging out, strings hanging out of his pants, trousers, see, and uh, you know the side locks and a big uh, skull cap. You don't see this. That's not what you're expecting, and so that's such a kind of unusual thing and I, I think yeah the, don't underestimate just doesn't even matter what I'm talking about you know you say you're poking fun yeah but just the impact of that image is so extraordinary but for me no the, the really important thing is entertainment and entertainment at, at, at the most professional of a standard that I would be happy to put my name to that's so important to me and that's that's why I, I'm doing something like I'm doing now you know the theatres because you do a thing in a shawl on like a, a dodgy PA, uh, bad sound and no light. I once did a thing in a shawl years ago. I turned up and I said, um, what are you doing with the lights? And they said, well, you've got two choices, on or off. <laughs> I said, well, I guess we'll have it on. Then. And I remember actually the big, you know, seriously, one of the biggest catalysts to me doing this kind of thing, more seriously, like theatres and, and, and promoting and producing my own tours and whatever was I once went to, I did a thing in a shawl and I saw on the wall this horrible poster that they'd done with like bad word clip art on it and stuff. And I just thought, no, I'm not having my name on that. Yeah, no, no, we'll do this properly. We'll do this properly. 
Ashley, in just in closing, tell us how this show, this new tour, again, we're here in late May 2018. You're about to embark on this landmark tour off Broadway, on Broadway, <laughs> however that works. How did it come about? How did it materialize? Has it been in the works for a long time? How does yeah. one secure a spot in that forum? And, and, and what are your expectations for this tour? Yeah, look, I, I said before, you know, I'm always looking to challenge. My wife and I were always looking to challenge ourselves. And, and you know, I've done UK tours. And I've, I've performed, done two Israel tours, and South Africa. And I did a few shows in, in America. But I thought, you know, this, this is the next thing. It's like, like do, okay, so we'll do one show, we'll do one show. But what about a run? So this, is a five, this isn't a tour, it's a run. It's so like a five-week, 35 shows. I'm doing seven shows a week. That's five evenings, Sunday through Thursday, and two matinees, Sunday and Wednesday. You know, maybe no one will come. I don't know. I have no idea. You know, this is the thing. I, you, you, I'm if always... If give out free tickets, I'm sure they'll come. Yeah, exactly. The juice. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's a free kugel as well, maybe. Um, and free sushi. And a free parking spot. Um, uh, yeah, no, so basically, like, I, I, it's always challenging. Thinking, you know, that this is the next challenge. Let's see. Will people come? I hope they do. Otherwise, I'll be on my own. Um, but that's always a challenge. It's, it's about trying, not resting on the laws, not just going, okay, we'll do a show here, a show there. Let's do this. I always think, you know, the people are there. You know, as they say, you know, if you build it, they'll come. Um, we're there. I hope people will come. So it's great. And, and if people want to come, listeners want to come, they can, um, yeah, so I'm starting Sunday, May 27th, Memorial Day weekend. And I'm there all the way through five weeks. So it's basically all the way until the end of June. So just before Faster Thomas and the three weeks starts. So which is the uh, 28th of, uh, I think my last show's uh, Thursday, June 28th. And uh, you can get tickets either on Ticketmaster or calling the theater. Are you, are you expecting a lot of media coverage or no yeah, from it? Uh, yeah, I, I hope so. It's in the uh, New York Post Friday. And yeah, you know, from both the Jewish press, but also from the non-Jewish world, they're like just fascinated by this. Yeah, it's just so unusual. So I hope people are interested. By the way, Jews love a bargain. I'll tell you this, a, a bit of advice. So you can get tickets for the show at Ticketmaster, but it's cheaper if you want to save money. And actually, depending on how many tickets you're buying, it's quite a big saving, actually. If you buy from the box office, and their phone number is 212-921-7862. That's 212-921-7862. Because then you don't have to pay all the Ticketmaster charges. Right. And they're quite big. They're like, they're, it's really expensive, actually, Ticketmaster. So, um, yeah, it works out uh, quite a saving. So uh, but anyway, either way, I hope people will come. And uh, it should be really good fun. I re I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited. Did you write uh, all the material? Oh, for sure. For sure, yeah. With a lot of inspiration from every Jew I've ever met. <laughs> well, wonderful way to close. Ashley Blaker, comedian, on Broadway, off Broadway, or off Broadway, on Broadway, coming up. And again, for those listening to this at a later date, I'm sure you can find that show and, and all of his other uh, comedy online by Googling his name. And uh, thank you very much for joining us, Ashley Blaker. Pleasure. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.